Hi, I'm Nancy Hanna. And I'm Dina Gottesman. In the second episode of Beyond the Bolus, we're coming to you live from the American Diabetes Association Conference, the 82nd Scientific Sessions. Throughout this episode of Beyond the Bolus, we'll be talking about the importance of the entire diabetes care team. In particular, how the collaboration between the team meets the needs of people living with diabetes. Join us as we explore a day in the life with our two exceptional guest speakers, Dr. Greg Forlenza and Dr. Diana Isaacs, as they offer up valuable insights on how a diabetes care team is crucial in a world of ever-changing diabetes tech and telemedicine. Sit tight as we gain practical tips and key takeaways from these diabetes experts. We're your hosts, Dina Gottesman and Nancy Hanna. Welcome. Welcome. So we're going to introduce our first guest, which is Dr. Greg Forlenza. Uh, Dr. Forlenza is a pediatric endocrinologist at the Barbara Davis Center at the University of Colorado, Denver. He's been caring for children with type 1 diabetes for over 15 years. His research is focused on technology to improve the health and lifestyle of people with type 1 diabetes. We're also joined by Dr. Diana Isaacs, our second guest on today's podcast. Dr. Isaacs is the Continuous Glucose Monitoring Program Coordinator and Endocrinology Clinical Pharmacy Specialist at the Cleveland Clinic Diabetes Center, where she provides medication management and diabetes education. She is very well-versed regarding the powerful benefits of the pharmacy channel and simple prescribing via EHR, a girl after my own heart. Simpler is better. I agree. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me to speak today. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for joining us. We're excited to have you. Uh, so just kind of some icebreaker questions that we probably already talked about. We already talked about food, but tell us some of the great, amazing foods that you've had here in New Orleans, because it is a food city. Well, I've had the best beignets ever. <laughs> I love uh, people that know me know I do have a bit of a sweet tooth. Um, so that powdered sugary goodness um, was pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah. And uh, people that know me know that I don't like seafood. So I have to go out of my way to find the, the good things that I like here without uh, engaging with the seafood. So I've had some, uh, some very good uh, chicken gumbo and sausage gumbo, as well as um, some red beans and rice, which is what I like to have around here for lunch. So that's very good. And uh, after we finish today, I hope to go find some beignets. That's oh, I nice. Had yet. nice. Very nice. So we'll be crawfish free here. Yeah. Totally crawfish Should, free. Shouldn't be too hard to find some exactly. good beignets, I suspect. Exactly. Uh, what are you guys doing? Uh, what are your plans for, for here during the conference and then after leaving New Orleans? Where are you going after that? Well, I've been spending tons of my time just meeting up with people. It's tough because there's like 10 amazing sessions all happening at the same time. And I've gotten to attend some of them, but really I figure I can go back and see some of the things on demand. But it's the being here and actually meeting people and having those conversations and building those collaborations directly uh, has been really exciting. It's been funny because you see people and you're like, like Grazia Aleppo was like, Diana, I thought you were so much taller than that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's, 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 it's fun. It's so true. It's so true. <laughs> it's when true. you only get to see our heads in a little box, it's completely right, different experience. Right, right. That's awesome. Yeah, and for me, I mean, I've been able to go to a couple of the sessions, but the, the real benefit is being back in person and getting to have those, you know, 
know, unplanned conversations with potential collaborators, discover what other people are working on that, you know, they're not willing to present in front of an audience yet, and uh, get to find opportunities to work together and to drive things forward. That's where a lot of great, you know, scientific projects happen is those unplanned interactions. And that's what the virtual meetings have really missed. So it's good to, to get back to that. And then after this, I uh, go home for a couple of days, and then I fly to Endo Society next weekend to present on technology at Endo Society. Oh, nice. So very nice. the summer and then after that is Keystone. So the summer continues to be very busy with uh, returned in-person meetings. So it's it's good to you know have that opportunity to do that again. That's very is this Is this your first in-person meeting this year? No, actually, okay. we uh, went, myself and my team went to ATTD, that annual technology meeting in Europe. And uh, that was a very interesting meeting, especially from an insulet perspective, because at that point we were meeting and we were saying, you know, when is Omnipod 5 going to be available? <laughs> and they said, oh, you know, we're not sure. It's going to be sometime in the future. And then uh, three days later, it was uh, the still considered limited market release, but more a full commercial release. And so, you know, things move very quickly. I always joke that I'm the last person to get my slides in for every talk, no matter how late I put them in, something in the technology <laughs> world will change between when I gave in my slides and when the meeting has happened. And you've got to update so, it. Yeah. Yep, that yeah. continues to hold true. That's not a terrible problem to have, right? That's actually an exciting problem to have because, you know, hey, what else can I throw in there, right? Yeah. What is something you guys are currently working on that you're excited about? There's a lot of things, so it's hard, but I think really individualizing the care. And I think one of the big key takeaways that I've been happy to see here is about we have all of these new products, all of these new choices now, and we see that it's not a one-size-fits-all. Uh, not at all. And that's why we need to have choices, because each system offers different types of opportunities and different features that people need. And so one of the things like I'm personally working on and have embraced is something called the ICC framework, which stands for Identify, Configure, Collaborate. And it's about identifying the right technology for the right person at the right time, but then configuring it. And that's also the role of, you know, where the diabetes care and education specialist comes in is how can we really optimize the settings because we know it's not one size fits all and then collaborating together on that data so really utilizing that in practice to optimize care. Yeah, that's exciting. What about you, Dr. Perlenza? So some of it I can't go into full details about because it's under NDAs, but um, I'm excited about moving forward with auto-tuning and fully closed-loop designs that, you know, that we're still on this very famous uh, paper by Aaron Kowalski, who's now uh, head of JDRF, um, uh, called The Roadmap. And, you know, we finally got into the step of the roadmap where we have usable, um, highly uh, beneficial hybrid closed-loop systems. And the next step on the roadmap is, you know, fully closed loop systems. And um, I'm really excited that now we've reached the point where, you know, the concerns from being able to do this from a COVID perspective have basically been, you know, eliminated. We have safe ways of conducting these studies and moving forward and being able to say, you know, now we can get to the systems that will, you know, handle everything for you and not require the physician to tune the device and not require you to enter what you're eating. And we're basically, from my perspective, at the point with planning these studies, Uh, where we were in 2016 for the current hybrid closed-loop systems. And so a lot of those systems, you know, in 2016 moved between 2016 and, you know, 2022, you know, a a four- to six-year horizon from, you know, being in early clinical development to commercial approval. And I think we're kind of on the same timeline with hybrid closed-loop designs. And so my hope is to be able to engineer our way out of some of the problems that we still have, and I definitely think we're able to do that. That's Absolutely. I mean, our jaws, (laughs) our jaws just dropped. And where I wanted to say, tell me more, but I was holding myself back. You just said 
a lot and gave us a lot of great information. And I kind of wish we could talk about that more. I know. I'm going to ask the question just whether it's going to be in this or not, because I'm dying to know. What do you think the role of the CDCES is as we progress into a more truly automated system? So... In all the trials, um, you know, we've still continued to have issues with DKA and with hypoglycemia, and it always occurs from very classical reasons. One of the cases of uh, severe hypo that I always talk about was a mother of a very well-controlled child, very attentive mother, pre-bolused her daughter before breakfast, and the girl decided to run off and watch Netflix instead of eating breakfast. It happens. And, you know, educating families about, you know, pre-bolusing, you know, proper behaviors, proper follow-up, proper monitoring is going to be universal. And a DKA event we had was with an adolescent whose system alarmed appropriately for his high blood sugar and he put the alarming device under his pillow so he could go back to sleep <laughs> and then woke familiar. up in the morning with yeah. ketones. Sure. And so, um, you know, the, the things that are universal in terms of appropriate monitoring and follow-up are, you know, going to continue to be universal, continuing, you know, to deal with, you know, the stresses of wearing devices. The, you know, bolusing will still be beating non-bolusing. It's just that automated bolusing will have a much higher floor than we currently mm-hmm. see with it now, which is a very, very low floor. And so, you know, working on, you know, when we bolus, how we bolus, and, you know, as we move to more meal concept announcement rather than, you know, actual carb amounts, you know, what we're going to see is some degree of de-skilling. Things that people, you know, now people can carb count, you know, they'll stop being able to do that, which is good. You know, yeah. people without diabetes don't often carb count. Right. But, you know, if you if you start having people who never carb counted, how do you estimate the size of a meal? So I think there will still be, you know, more than ample work for diabetes educators. Awesome. Um, We're in, not losing our in jobs, In terms Dina. of, you know, just shifting it from you know, being more kind of technical tuning, which is the part that I think I'm good at, you know, we're going to get away from that, (laughs) to being more, you know, emotional support and uh, education, which will be true regardless of how far we get the technology along. People will still need that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, that's good to hear. It's what I hoped and suspected, but it's nice to hear it. I think that actually leads us to our kind of into our topic today. Um, just generally, what's a typical day look like? So, so you know, our, our, our hope in this conversation is to talk about the care team, right? And both of you as, as doctors, you as a pharmacist and you as an endocrinologist have care teams that I think I can probably say are important to your jobs. What is a sort of typical day in the life for a returning patient versus like a new patient in terms of a, a day for you? Yeah, I can start. So for new patients, we often have them come to our comprehensive diabetes clinic. We call it our CDC clinic. And there they see, you know, they come in, they first see the medical assistant, the MA who downloads their data, whatever that is, if it's a meter, CGM, pump. Uh, And then they actually see the pharmacist first for a really full medication reconciliation and discussion. And then uh, they see the endocrinologist. And so often the pharmacist will start off, get a good history. Um, Then the endocrinologist will come in. And then kind of in coordination, we actually collaborate together to discuss what we think the best 
care plan and it'll depend because we do see a wide variety of types of patients. I mean, I work with adults, but we see type one, we see type two, we see pregnancy, we see pancreatic diabetes, we see like a little bit of everything. Some people come to us for second or third opinion. So it's really just, it's really diverse, but we come up with a plan and then the person sees our diabetes care and education specialist, nurse, usually a nurse, although we have nurses and, and dietitians rotate as well. And then through our discussion, we decide, well, what's going to be the best follow-up plan? Often, we utilize our pharmacists actually to see patients in between their next endo appointment, which often will be in three months, but we, depending on the need, we may have a follow-up in two weeks. Sometimes, one of the things we do, if someone's not on CGM, it is standard practice that we put them on a CGM in that visit. We'll, we'll start them on a professional CGM if needed. Um, and then we follow, we set up that follow-up in two weeks to really review that data and personalize it. We have a remote monitoring program. We have uh, dietitians. We actually, I'm really glad we have a clinical psychologist. We have a social Ooh, worker. Wow. We have an exercise physiologist. We have a weight management program. We're very fortunate. You're equipped. But <laughs> depending on the person's needs, we decide what's gonna be the best path for them to go. That's amazing. I mean, truly a one-stop shop. <laughs> well, we need teams. I mean, we know that about diabetes. It's a team sport. We cannot expect one person to do everything because Amen. there's, yeah, there's multiple <laughs> needs in diabetes. So having a team, um, and I recognize not everyone's going to have all the people that we have. So in other institutions, someone might be having multiple hats and that's okay too. Um, but the important thing is that it's not just one person doing everything that patients, people with diabetes feel that they have a support team. I have a question. Question and I actually we'll get to you, Dr. Falenza. Tell us tell us about a typical day in the life, and then I'm going to come back to you, Dr. Isaacs, okay, with cool. a specific question about something you said. Please go ahead. So um, I'm going to focus on new onsets. Mm -hmm. um, so Barbara Davis Center, we see somewhere between 400 and 500 new onsets a year. Um, any day when we're on call, we average somewhere between one and four, you know, new onsets that we're seeing that day. And it's uh, there's a phrase in um, theater that, you know, every night needs to be opening night. And, you know, that's similar to what we encounter with, you know, new onset patients that um, every time you're seeing a new onset, you're, you know, encountering, you know, parents for whom it's, you know, one of the most shocking and, you know, worst days of their life. And so they're going to, you know, remember, you know, every nuance of forever. And, you know, same thing for the child, depending on the age of the, the child, how aware they are of what's going on. And so um, we try and do our best to balance kind of two priorities, which is providing all the education people need while not outrageously overwhelming them. And I think there's no way to avoid the latter, but we try and, uh, and minimize it. And so our new onsets uh, now broken up over two days and has a very diverse team approach. We like to start with the physician, so myself going in and spending about an hour with the family going over basic history and uh, talking about you know, what diabetes is, uh, what causes it, how we take care of it. And, you know, trying to dispel myths and rumors is a lot of what we do. It's very interesting to talk to some of my older colleagues about this because, you know, pre-internet, they basically had to get out there and, and give people knowledge. And now where the internet is, we have to go in and instead <laughs> dispel wrong yeah. information, which in many ways is harder to fix wrong information than it is to just fill information in for someone who doesn't have it yet. And so, you know, we have to incorporate, you know, into our talks discussing, here's what someone probably already sent you on Facebook and why it's not true. And it's always funny with the families that, um, 
even though I didn't ask them what nonsense people sent on Facebook, I'm always right that, <laughs> yeah. you know, someone has sent them yeah. some nonsense article that's probably not even true for type two, but isn't even relevant for type one. Right. And so after uh, we get through that, then the, the diabetes educator nurse goes in and talks with the family, usually for about three hours, about um, how to give an injection, how to do a finger stick, and what to do if your blood sugar's low, what to do if it's high, kind of planning out your, your insulin dosing, you know, around your day and around your schedule and giving them, you know, custom, you know, hand-drawn pictures on the board that now they take pictures of with their cell phone to, uh, to go home with. And I mean, I've seen families that keep that picture on their phone for years, you know, wow. after diagnosis. And for as much of a tech nerd as I am, we like to do that old school. Sometimes people would say, well, why don't you just record a PowerPoint and show the same PowerPoint to everyone? And it doesn't come across the same way as, you know, drawing it up on the board live for the family and making it, you know, interactive and customized to their child. So I think that, you know, maybe having a smart board where it would get my handwriting better would be nice. But, um, you know, you want to keep that live and real because it's very tangible for people. And then they go home and usually overnight call in about once or twice to interact with our fellow and, you know, find out the questions that I always say, no matter how long we spend to on the first day, the first thing you encounter when you go home is going to be something you would have never thought to ask. And then on day two, they see one of our nurse practitioners who is going to come in and uh, follow up on how things went overnight. And it's going to be the one they're following with by text and email um, over the next one to two weeks. And they meet with one of our dietitians to understand carbohydrate counting and to go over more of the, the MDI way that they're going to take care of diabetes for the first month or two of diagnosis. And then they meet with one of the medical social workers who uh, provides a lot of the emotional behavioral support at our center and talks to them about you know feelings around diagnosis, uh, needle phobia, and that kind of thing. And I really want to see us moving forward faster with technology, uh, you know, trying to implement CGM on day one. Um, but that obviously presents an educational challenge of, you know, we're already very full over two, you know, half days. And how do we add, you know, 30, 45 minutes of CGM education? And in a lot of ways, I would love to, you know, start people on devices on day one. And um, but that also presents a challenge that, you know, everyone needs to know how to do an injection when it's necessary. And I'm very pro-technology and, you know, we've been doing the Omnipod 5 studies in some ways for six years, the pivotal trial for a year and a half. And the system has, you know, greater than 95% uptime, but you got to know what to do that other fraction of a percentage uh, because it's going to be the thing that happens at two o'clock in the morning or the thing that happens on Christmas Eve <laughs> yeah, like, when you're on vacation in yep. the mountains. And Always. so... With no cell phone reception, yeah. right? Yeah. So, you That's know, I, I refer to that as our fail-safes right. and you don't need to do it all the time, but you need to know how to change a tire when your tire goes out. Exactly. Right. Right. Exactly. It sounds like you both have excellent programs and now I'm thinking do I want to move halfway across the country <laughs> and come work with both of you because wow I mean talk about superheroes of diabetes yeah. education and just like you said Dr. Ferlenza this can be the worst day of a family's life or of a patient's life who's getting a new diagnosis your patients are lucky to have you and to have your programs um, I think about the patients who are in you know different parts of the country where maybe there is not as much support um, and what that experience is like for them. Uh, but I'm getting off on a tangent a little bit. We'll come back to that. Uh, Dr. Isaacs, you said something about a CGM monitoring clinic. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Well, we now, we believe so strongly in the value of CGM, really for everyone. Of course, someone on insulin, 
but even those that are not taking insulin, just the value of being able to see the effects from food, medications, physical activity, stress, sleep, it really, it can be so eye-opening and so helpful for behavior change. So uh, now anyone not on it, we're trying to really take advantage of professional CGM, but we also, we do something called CGM shared medical appointments where we put CGM on people, we bring them back, often after seven days, and we review the data together because there's often a lot of similarities in people's data. I mean, we found this even people on different types of medications. Um, the fact, like the classic over-treating hypoglycemia, right? We talk about the rule of 15, but what actually happens in real life? <laughs> or open the fridge and they inhale, right? Right, they and then the, <laughs> the classic like American breakfast, like cereal, oatmeal, Yeah. Um, seeing what happens and then trying a day of eating hard-boiled eggs. Like right. it's just these classic things and people really learn from each other, but also there's that peer support too of like, I'm not alone in this. Like, it's not just me. Like this can be hard sometimes and being able to see um, the effects from tools like CGM can be really, really powerful. So both of you kind of hinted at this a little bit and I wanna, I'm, I like love insurance. I think insurance is really interesting, especially in the United States, it differs across, you know, different state lines and Medicaid plans and all sorts of things. Both of you said something about, we wish we could, so Dr. Falenza, you said we wish we could start technology right away, but there's a time issue. Um, and you said, Diana, you know, we put people on CGM even when they're not on insulin. What role does insurance coverage play on that? Is that why you're doing the professional CGM maybe? And Dr. Ferlenza, is that also, you know, is insurance an issue and a hiccup of why you can't get people on technology maybe on day one? So my response would be, probably brief first, I'll go first. Um, <laughs> the issue in new onsets is we can get all of our CGM partners to supply us with a couple of CGMs to use in new onsets on day one. You know, they, they want that because it's, you know, a good hook. The challenge becomes getting their full coverage approved. So when we've piloted this before, the issue we ran into is we took this, you know, frightened family, as I said, on one of the scariest days of their lives, we said, here's this special tool that's going to keep your child safe. They become reliant on it, and then they can't get the second sensor. And in many ways, that's worse than never introducing it at all, because we give them one for free that we start on day one, and then it takes four weeks to process it through their insurance. And then we've given them this thing, it's been a light at the end of the tunnel, and then the light gets turned off, and uh, nobody's happy. And so that to us is the challenge that we hadn't anticipated, is it's not getting them to want to use it. That, that's easy to see the benefits immediately. It's not getting them to be successful with it. They're successful with it immediately. It's moving from the free demo to the perpetual that has become an issue that it's not happening fast enough for it to be done the, well the way we would like it to be done. And we want to solve that. And those are, yeah, those are great points. So often the patients I'm seeing have already been living with diabetes for a little bit, so it's not brand new. And hopefully by the time they're seeing us, they've had some education on their, a lot of them are already doing finger sticks. So if they're not on CGM, the reason why we often take advantage of professional CGM is because it is usually covered two to four times per year. 
with most insurance plans. And so it's something we know we can do. We educate the person that this is going to be a 10 to 14 day trial, depending on the device that we use. And if they want to continue using CGM, we're happy for that. But we know for people on multiple injections of insulin or already on an insulin pump, generally the coverage is great. The coverage is improving for basal insulin because we've got studies like the mobile study that have really shown the benefit. Uh, for those that are not on insulin, we know the coverage is often not great at this time. And so often it may mean paying out of pocket. Now the cost has come down, but that's a conversation with the person if they, are, they have the means to pay that and uh, it's, it's a discussion. Yeah, it's such a, this seems to be the theme in my mind of the last few days is sort of the systemic issue of insurance and just the way that the the system is is set up um and it it's i just get i get so personally frustrated for our patients because we just as care providers want to give them all the things to take care of themselves so um it sounds like you've kind of been able to kind of get a get around some of those challenges at the very least to start them with with the um professional one for at least a little bit of data Yeah. Collection. One thing I just want to add, though, is the important, whether you're starting professional CGM, personal CGM, even blood glucose monitoring, the education about the glucose targets, because I have seen a lot of instances where someone, they start CGM, great, uh, but they come back like averaging 300, but not having the insight that that's not okay that we, the 300 is not the goal. And so we really do a disservice if we provide this amazing device, Without but we don't provide education about, well, what are your glucose targets? Where do we want to be fasting or before meals? Where should you be after meals? And especially about time and range. So I just think there's a tremendous role and kind of going back to the diabetes care and education specialist, that's a role that I see always being important about that glucose monitoring because with technology, it is it is not 100%. It's not perfect all of the time. And so understanding what those glucose targets, I think, will always be important. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of what our educators do when we're starting patients on CGM is giving them reasonable expectations for where to set the alarms, and in some cases, even not setting alarms, turning the alarms off. Be in pediatrics. At, at diagnosis, yeah. At diagnosis. Because okay. what will happen is they'll say, well, I want the child's blood sugar. You told me the goal range because the numbers mean nothing to them. They've just heard about the numbers for the first time. Um, you know, you told me the goal range is 70 to 180. So I'm going to set my sensor to alarm at 70 and set it to <laughs> alarm at 180. Right. And this is someone with nuanced diabetes that we've just created dosing for. And so their blood sugar is going to be 250. And then the sensor alarms all the time. And they say, why do they give me this alarming device? All it does is say I'm wrong constantly. <laughs> and then it results in... In them, you know, saying, okay, well, you know, now we, we've adjusted it and I know it alarms the least when the child's blood sugar is over 200. Mm -hmm. So now my goal is to keep the blood sugar right around 200 to keep the alarming thing quiet. And we say, no, no, that is not the lesson we wanted you to learn <laughs> right. from this, similar to what uh, Diana was just saying. Yeah. And so um, we would still, you know, advocate for setting, obviously, the, the hypo alarm. That's going to be important regardless. But how we use the hyper alarm and how we kind of walk that down as we're, you know, titrating dosing on to someone, especially someone who's been in DKA and we know is going to have improving insulin sensitivity even before they go into the honeymoon, is uh, is part of what we're learning still um, as providers because we want to educate people, you know, positively rather than you know accidentally teach them wrong lessons. 
How, how frequently, especially with new onset patients, how frequently are you all following up and what do follow-ups look like? So when are they then? So in the case of Barbara Davis, Dr. Falenza, it sounds like there's an intense two days. Mm-hmm. And then after that, when are they back? Well, follow-up can mean different things. Okay. Um, you, you, you said follow-up and then you said back. Um, <laughs> so uh, they're following up daily with the nurse practitioner um, via email and receiving some form of dosing titration every day. Um, for at least uh, one to two weeks. And then when they come in for their one-week visit, um, that's an in-person visit um, or telemedicine now, um, right now. Hopefully going to get back to in-person more so. And so then they have a you know billable touch point with us at about one week, but they have unbillable touch points you know, every day for a couple of weeks. And then they come back at one month, and one month is usually when we start talking about pumps. Um, I'd like for it to be earlier, but there's a lot of challenges with that. Like what? Um, the analogy I use is it's like asking you to buy a car if two days ago you didn't know there were cars. Okay. How do you know if you want a convertible or if you want an SUV, if you want a minivan, or if you want a pickup truck? And so I, even That's though... a great I'm, analogy. That is a great analogy. I've reflected on it a lot, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, you know, even though we're here talking about, you know, Omnipod 5 today, um, I think that certain devices will be, you know, the right fit for certain people, their lifestyle and their personality. And if you don't even know what your diabetes looks like, if you don't even know what giving insulin looks like, how do you decide on which device you want to use? And if you haven't slept in two days and are very, very stressed, you haven't absorbed a lot of what we've said because you're not in an optimal learning environment, how do you make that kind kind of a decision. Um, so usually around a month is what we're finding that people have enough experiential learning to start to make that decision. Um, Onopod 5 is going to be doing something very new and unique, which is not having a lock-in lockout. And so we'll be able to say to people, you know, start this. If you like it, you know, you can continue using it. If you don't like it, which I don't think is going to happen, but if you don't like it, then uh, you could switch to something else. And that's a form of flexibility that you uh, talked about insurance a little while ago. You know, insurance has previously forced us into this lock-in, lock-out paradigm, and uh, we're not going to be seeing that with Omnipod 5 going forward. And, you know, being very invested in the system, having worked on it for six years, I think people are going to like it. So I don't, I don't really believe that we're going to see so much of that. But if they don't, they're, they're not locked out either, which well, I think is a good... Yeah, I think that assurance of, hey, if you love it, great. And if you don't, that's fine. That's what I always tell yeah, my patients. Um, so, um, but yeah, it's, it's a personalized choice. And I think, Diana, you were alluding to that with your... Uh, I'm sorry, I forgot the acronym. I think it's C... Oh, the CDC clinic? The CDC clinic, which how could I forget that acronym? But yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, in terms of our follow-up, it does depend a little bit on what therapies they're currently on. Generally, someone who's coming through the CDC clinic, 7 to 14 days, because we're going to follow up on their data. Uh, Depending on the situation, you know, I follow a lot of patients, a lot of women in pregnancy. That's often weekly follow-up. Um, I also do a lot of like post-kidney transplant and they're on these high-dose steroid tapers. So that is like twice a week follow-up. Um, but the other areas, I also, I'm a pump trainer too. So when I start someone on an insulin pump, 
uh, usually typically the follow-up will look like one to two days after having that phone follow-up check-in, especially because a lot of our patients are transitioning from like a long-acting insulin and, and so seeing how's, how it's going and everything. Um, and then uh, after that, usually I said a week, really starting to look at the data and making adjustments as needed. And then after that, it may be two weeks later or a month later, kind of individualized depending on how they're doing. Uh, but making adjustments and that follow-up it often occurs virtually now. So we used to bring people in, but now with all the systems and having a mobile app where the data is seamlessly going up into the cloud and it's connected to our system, which is something we make sure happens before they leave our office for that of that pump training, that we have that data and they can be these quick touch points, these quick virtual visits. That's incredible. It, it really just, I think it, it just goes to show how important accessibility to the data for how we do our jobs. I mean, it's this technology is is really integral to success for 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 us as providers, for you guys when you're seeing your patients. It's Well, and it's funny, Dina and I were speaking and we were saying, had it not been for COVID, we wouldn't have realized we could have done our jobs so well virtually. And it wouldn't have pushed, I think, all of us in our practices and our clinics and just you know, the, the push to be able to get data virtually and have it go up to the cloud and how important that, even when we're seeing people in person, that makes workflow so much more efficient. It's I true, yeah, and it's funny because we were actually doing virtual visits before the <gasps> pandemic. Like, we had implemented them, but I wow. remember it was like, ahead of your time. Yeah, I, I guess so, but I remember it was like a special thing. I'd be like, I did four virtual visits this <laughs> month. And I gotta tell you, on my way here, I did six virtual visits on my layover in the airport. You did not. I had headphones, like I- <laughs> It's allowed, um, it's allowed. <laughs> so it's like, wow, the convenience yeah. of it, and that way, I can attend conferences like this. I can still take care of my patients. Like, it's just mm -hmm. like, it's unbelievable, right? Yeah, so at Barbara Davis Center, we were doing telemedicine uh, due to geography very heavily before the, the pandemic. Our center, um, you know, is really the only diabetes center for children in, you know, a 10 to 15 hour drive in some wow. directions. If you kind of think about where Denver is, I sometimes joke, you know, what's the closest city you can name near Denver? And it's probably going to be more than 10 hours away. And so we've had patients coming from, you know, very large geographic distances. The other thing that, you know, folks on the East Coast sometimes won't think about is some of our patients are even within Colorado or two mountain passes away. And so if it snows, they can't get to us even if they were willing to drive. And so um, I've been doing telemedicine in Grand Junction, Colorado, which is you know, still about four or five hours away. And if it snows again, you know, you, you can't get there. There was a rock slide a few years ago that blocked traffic for six weeks. And um, so we've been doing that for, you know, quite a long time before COVID. And, you know, having easy digital access to data is very important because at our center, we have, you know, a team of people that are very trained and skilled and able to do stuff. But if, you know, you only do the telemedicine visit, you know, once a month and the Java app needs to be updated or the, the Tide Pool uploader or Gluco uploader needs to be updated and the medical assistant doesn't have administrator privileges, so they have to call someone down from IT. These kind of silly things that we all encounter in our daily lives that you know, sort of seem almost laughable, but they can slow your clinic down by an hour if someone doesn't have administrator privileges to fix the uploader so you can get the data. That's the whole basis for your visit. So having you know, a perpetually connected CGM like Dexcom G6 having perpetually connected pump like Omnipod 5, you know, makes all of that um, easier. And I've been doing follow-up for 
32 Omnipod 5 patients for you know two years using the the research platform, um, and now those patients you know using the commercial platform and. It's easy. The medical assistants are like, oh, yeah, we just download all those in the morning and, you know, we don't have to wait for them to come in because we know the data is going to be there. So it makes everything, you know, very easy and streamlines, you know, the amount of time that I have to wait on the patient, the amount of time the patient has to wait on me. That's so encouraging. I feel like you all, you all should write a manual perhaps on, you know, efficient office flows, how things should work. But, you know, tell us a little bit about maybe your suggestions for practices that are, you know, Main Street USA, smaller non-university clinics. What, what would you recommend if money's an issue, if technology's an issue? How do you recommend that they get their endocrine practices off the ground? Well, I recommend everyone has a technology champion which can be multiple people can serve that role. I think the diabetes care and education specialist is a great person to serve in that role. I, I also recognize, unfortunately, not every practice even has a diabetes care and education specialist. Uh, so a pharmacist, a nurse practitioner, you know, a nurse, a dietitian. I mean, there's multiple people that can serve in that role. But the key is you want someone that is excited about technology, that finds it interesting. And there's so much to be excited about. It's not hard to be excited, um, but also helps the practice to stay up to date because there's so many changes, right? Like this has been an incredible year of FDA approvals and uh, you want someone that stays up to date and also with the process of obtaining it, right? Like with Omnipod 5, wow, it's going through pharmacy. Like that is different. It's a different approach than how we obtained insulin pumps in, in the past. And so getting the practice to understand that and then be able to implement the process. So I think that education is key and having that key person to do that. And then the rest of the things you can figure out. Some practices like mine, we're certified pump trainers and we do our own pump trainings and that is great. Uh, other practices that might not be the best approach and they may want to work with the industry sponsors to train their patients. So that's okay. But I think starting with that technology champion is really the key. And as you talk about expanding technology beyond kind of the major university centers, a big part of it is also how the devices are tuned. And so one of the challenges that we deal with is as we move to hybrid closed loop systems, every company took a different approach. And so the way each system is tuned is different. Um, my center, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Laurel Messer, has developed the, the Panther resource tools, which are basically meant to be you know, PDF single page worksheets that you know, walk you through tuning the device. And so that's something that can be intimidating to a lot of providers. What are the settings doing this device versus the other? One of the nice things about you know, the build for Omnipod 5 that we've gone with is that its tuning is very simple. The, the basal rates don't affect the system performance, and so the provider doesn't have to know or understand basal rates. The system doesn't use those once it's started in automated mode, um, as long as you know how to start them or initialize them, or you can get a consultant to help you start them and initialize them. Every provider should be able to be comfortable using it. Very well said. Thank you both for taking time out of your very busy schedules. I know both of you have a lot of things to see and people to speak with. So we very much appreciate and food your to time. Eat. Please yes. get lunch. I need to get lunch. <laughs> yeah. So hopefully that will happen next. And um, we really appreciate your um, your time and sharing all your knowledge and expertise. It's been truly invaluable, and your personal insights are are truly appreciated. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Have a great day.